Hello and welcome to episode 202 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story from the Midlands is a shocking murder on so many levels, and I'm really grateful to one of the top team of moderators at the UK True Crime Facebook group for researching and writing the case. A big thank you to Steve Percival. Before we begin, as always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon and to those patrons watching this live as I'm recording this episode. I'm so grateful for all your support and welcome this week's new members of this most exclusive club. That is Pete Murphy, Donna Barnard, Craig Stevens and Denise Tybell. Thank you so much. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. 2020 has been a tough year for us all and many of us are struggling in certain parts of our lives. For me, it's been finding the right balance for spending time at work and with family and worrying I'm failing in both. Whatever is interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. To be clear, it's not self-help. It's professional counselling in a safe and private online environment. No more sitting in unwelcoming waiting rooms and you don't want to wait around once you've made the decision to go ahead so you can start tomorrow and schedule weekly phone and video sessions and contact your counsellor anytime. What's more, it's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and it's available worldwide. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com UK. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash UK. Let's play the month and year competition for the events we're going to talk about today. Top of the UK music chart was Sam Smith with Two Good It Goodbyes. In the US, it was Taylor Swift with Look What You Made Me Do. And in the Australian album charts, it was the Foo Fighters with Concrete and Gold. In the news this month, the devastating Hurricane Irma made landfall in the Caribbean and US, causing devastation and loss of life. In Barbuda, Prime Minister Gaston Brown reported that 95% of buildings were damaged. I was in Barcelona this month when Catalonia's parliament passed a law to allow a referendum on independence from Spain. In another non-corrupt decision by sporting authorities, Paris was named the host of the Olympics in 2024 and Los Angeles in 2028. And the video game Fortnite Battle Royale was released, eventually becoming one of the most popular games worldwide. And in UK true crime news, a blast and fire on a tube train at Parsons Green Station in West London was treated as a terrorist attack. Did you get the month and year? It was September 2017. This week's episode takes place in Fleckney, a rural village with a population of just under 5,000 people in the East Midlands, a few miles to the south of Oadby and Leicester. Please be aware that although I've tried to keep some details to a minimum, this is still a very distressing case. In September 2017, 72-year-old Jane Hings lived alone in a bungalow with her dog Paddy. She had only recently been released from a nursing home in June after a fall had severely affected her mobility. Jane was able to get around the house, but one of the problems with older people when they have a fall or similar is the loss of confidence. And in this case, the fall had badly affected Jane's confidence 
and she was reluctant to go out for anything apart from the essentials. But she did take great comfort from her dog Paddy. Animals were always a passion of hers, and even in retirement she donated to nine charities, including the RSPCA and Cats Protection. Jane was also a keen churchgoer, and this was a significant part of Jane's social life where she felt comfortable, and this is where she built up a lot of her small but close circle of friends. Jane had no immediate family, and so she relied on others to take her to the supermarket, to get haircuts and to walk the dog. She also needed daily visits from carers to help her keep the house clean and tidy and to prepare her daily meals. On the morning of the 24th of September, Jane's two carers came to visit her as part of their daily routine, just to help her with some general domestic chores, have a cup of tea and spend a bit of time with her. Every day when they arrived, Jane would either come to the door or be in the living room and she would wave she'd be delighted to see them. In reality, she enjoyed their company as much as the help they were able to provide and she enjoyed the conversation. But on this day, Jane didn't come to the front door and they couldn't see her in the living room. This was most unusual. The carers let themselves in and started to look around the house for her, fearing that she may have suffered another fall. They eventually found Jane in her bedroom, lifeless under the covers. At first glance, it appeared she'd peacefully died during the night, and their first response was to call for an ambulance. But very quickly, their suspicions were raised, and they began to fear that Jane had not died of natural causes, so they called the police. It quickly became apparent that all was not as it seemed. Jane was not wearing her wedding ring or the crucifix necklace that she always wore, and all of her other jewellery was missing. When the covers of her bed were fully removed, Jane was found to be half-naked and there were signs of blood. At first the cause of death wasn't clear, but later analysis showed that the cause of death was asphyxiation. And shockingly, detectives realised that kind, gentle and harmless Jane had been burgled, raped and murdered during that horrible night. On further examination of her bedding by forensic experts, There was found on her pillow a big patch of her saliva on one area and crucially, somebody else's DNA was found on either side. As Jane's body was carefully removed from the scene, experts found a tongue bar in a fold of her skin. This surely had to belong to the person who had murdered Jane. And later, the same DNA present on the tongue bar was found inside Jane's body and also on a baseball cap which was found behind the bed. Detectives now just had to find the person whose DNA was a match. News of Jane's murder soon spread around the small tight-knit community and there was genuine fear that the killer was on the loose and they could strike again. After all, if they could kill someone as defenceless as Jane, nobody was safe. Detectives, despite their appeal for calm, knew they were under pressure to make an arrest and quickly. So often on this podcast we hear the frustration suffered by detectives when the DNA isn't immediately traceable, but not today. In this case, the DNA was taken for analysis to the East Midlands Special Operations Unit and within 24 hours they had a clear match. That person's name was Craig Keogh. Police immediately went to Craig's home where he was present and he was arrested two days after Jane's murder 
on the 26th of September. Detectives will later release full video footage of this arrest, so if you Google it, you can search for it online. Keogh did come quietly, and without playing the role of armed psychologist, I mean, there's enough of those out there, aren't there already? He wasn't defiant at all, and he appeared on the surface to have the look of somebody who's distraught, and you get the feeling that he knows he's in serious trouble. When Craig was taken into custody, he was drug tested, and he was found to be under the influence of cocaine. So who was Craig Gio? Craig Gio was 25 years old and local, having grown up in the Fleckney area, and attended Robert Smythe's school in nearby Market Harborough. Craig had been in and out of work, but lack of earning money didn't get in the way of his lifestyle. He liked to lead a very sociable party lifestyle, enjoying beers with his friends and posting often on social media about enjoying the drug scene. And he had a reputation among his friends as being big on drugs and this had been a big part of his life as early as his school days. Craig had a big personality and when he had the money, he was larger than life and very generous with his cash when out in public and flashing his money around. But returning to one of the recurring themes we see on this podcast about perception versus reality, whilst he liked to brag about his lifestyle when out and about, the video of his arrest showed his living conditions were not as you may expect. In fact, he lived in a small, decrepit old caravan on the outskirts of Fleckney. Whatever money Craig managed to get his hands on was immediately spent on a public version of himself that he had no way of affording, something that all of us are familiar with among some of our friends and family, right? Craig had also been in trouble with the police on a number of occasions, and these brushes with the law were all for burglary. In 2011, he pleaded guilty to breaking into a garden shed to steal tools. And in 2012, he broke into the sports centre in Fleckney to steal items. Then in 2013, shockingly, he was convicted again for burglary and the house he stole items from was his parents. And then later on in the same year, a friend of his took him in and gave him a room to sleep in. How did Craig show his gratitude for this kindness? Yeah, you got it, by robbing him. And Craig was in front of the court again soon on this matter, being convicted of stealing items from his friend's house. It transpired that Craig had known Jane Hings for a short while, occasionally visiting her, and he'd been seen taking her dog for a walk on a few occasions. How they met and how Craig came to befriend and care for her isn't clear but Craig later said that he saw Jane went out one day and offered to help her after her shopping bag split. It may also be they crossed paths locally, as he lived just a few streets away from Jane's home. And of course, Jane would never have guessed just what Craig was capable of doing. She would just have seen him as a nice young man offering to help. Detectives quizzed him on what had happened on the night of the murder. That evening, he'd gone for a night out with a group of friends in Oadby, Earlier in the day he'd been drinking too, with CCTV showing him at most pubs in the town at some point during the day. I think it's fair to say he liked a beer. He was being lively, loud, and his usual confident self, having a great time and socialising with his group and other groups around them. However, as the night progressed, he was drinking more and more. He'd taken a lot of drugs as well, 
and it had taken its toll. Witnesses on that night described Craig as being wide-eyed and loud and clearly under the heavy influence of both drugs and alcohol. He was seen when walking between pubs, smashing a wing mirror off a car, ripping up flowers, pulling up trees, and he'd even jumped on a van. He'd also tried to sell cocaine to two members of staff at the Ogby Owl pub, and when they threatened to call the police, he said, I'm from Fleckney. I've seen a man shanked. I've got a piece. CCTV from the Oakby Owl pub also showed Craig in the baseball cap that was found behind the bed of Jane Hings, as well as him struggling to walk and stumbling at the nearby Black Dog pub. By the end of the night, he was in a terrible state, and at one point told his friends it was a shit boring night. He said instead he could have spent the night with a couple of girls he'd arranged to go out with. He eventually got a taxi back to Fleckney with a friend from the village. It was now the early hours of Sunday morning, around 1.15am, and after being dropped off by the taxi, he parted ways with his friend as they were meant to head home for the night. But for some reason, Craig changed his mind and decided instead to walk to Jane's house nearby. Detectives believe that whilst high on drugs and alcohol, Craig entered Jane's house with the intention of burgling her home, but he then raped her twice and smothered her so that she could never identify him. He made some token and rather careless attempts to tidy the mess he had made and to cover his tracks before leaving. After leaving, detectives established that he did go back again, but quite what for is unclear. Maybe it was a further attempt to cover his tracks. Craig insisted that detectives were mistaken and claimed that this version of events simply wasn't true. He didn't steal anything from Jane, and while he did have sex with her, not only was it consensual, but she had in fact paid him £200 for sex. And what's more, this was not the first time it had happened. She paid him for sex before. And as well as sex, he insisted he'd also been paid on other occasions to do general chores for her. Craig went into more activity about what had happened after the supposed consensual sex. He said, she'd enjoyed the activity and seemed fine. She was a bit shaky, but then fine. And after a further five to ten minutes, she said she was not well and she went off to bed rubbing her tummy and got the money. Craig did everything he could to portray Jane as a very different person to the one known and loved by friends and family, even suggesting at one time that she was heavily dependent on alcohol. His version of events was disputed by independent medical experts, who said that marks found on Jane's neck were clearly from a necklace being forcibly removed, and marks on her groin were undisputedly from non-consensual sex. And also for Craig, there was the issue that she was clearly asphyxiated, with overwhelming evidence to show the weapon was the pillow on her very own bed, which had Jane's saliva on it, and evidence it had been tightly gripped by Craig, which she would have done to use it as the murder weapon. Craig Keogh was charged with Jane's murder. At the trial, Craig pleaded not guilty, but as he decided to not provide evidence or speak except for giving his plea, his line of defence could never be properly scrutinised. In court, it was revealing when the prosecution pieced together Craig's movements the following day. 
On the face of things, Craig appeared to be his usual confident self without a care in the world, despite just having murdered Jane. It's hard to imagine how you would feel that first moment. You woke up in the morning for tower hangover and recalled just what had happened, isn't it? He left his house with a black bin bag in the morning and it's believed that this bag contained all of the items he needed to get rid of that were stolen from Jane's house. His friend Jason Robson collected him from his home and it was around 11.30 in Leicester, whilst with Jason, when Craig produced some items of jewellery. Two rings, a crucifix and two earrings. Craig persuaded Jason to sell them at local jewellers for £105 in cash. The items were later valued at between £900 and £1,200 apiece. In the following days, the detectives went back to the jewellers and obtained the pieces of jewellery. When examined, they found that both had traces of Jane and Craig's DNA. And that morning, Craig also bought himself a new tongue bar to replace the one he left at Jane's house. Going back to the day after the murder, after the jewellers, Craig met a friend for lunch at Foxton Locks, a pub next to the Grand Union Canal, alongside the very quaint and picturesque canal boat Locks. It was here that he produced his mobile phone, and asked his friend to get rid of it. His friend agreed and chose a cunning and elaborate method of disposal. He threw the phone down a drain. Later on that day, Craig went out for more drinks with friends, saying that he'd found some money in Leicester city centre, and like with all money he got his hands on, he was spending it like there was no tomorrow, living life to the fullest. Later, upon reading of Craig's arrest in the news, Craig's phone disposal friend quickly understood how serious his actions were and immediately called the police. The police went back and managed to collect the phone and it was proven to be Jane's mobile with Craig's DNA on it. The only item which the police could never locate was Jane's handbag, which was believed to have had almost £300 inside as she'd recently taken out her pension money. As we heard, Craig pleaded not guilty to the charges of murder, rape and burglary, but after hearing the evidence put to him, later in the trial Craig changed his version of events, admitting to the burglary and taking Jane's belongings. However, he insisted that he was innocent of the other crimes. His defence team was still adamant that he only went to a house because he was invited and offered money for sex. He then also claimed they watched an old war film on the TV together, even though the timeline does not fit in with any CCTV evidence and the TV schedules had no wartime films on that evening. In closing, the prosecution told Birmingham Crown Court this was an act apparently that she wanted and that she paid for. Did she want to be hurt? Because she certainly bled. You've seen the blood on her sheet on her mattress. Does that sound like fun to you? It must have been, you might think, utterly terrifying for her. Whether she screamed or cried, we do not know. What we do know is that she was alive when it occurred and that her death thereafter was quick and efficient. After a five-day trial at Birmingham Crown Court, jurors deliberated for just four hours before finding Craig Keogh guilty of burglary, two counts of rape and murder. He was told that he must spend a minimum of 32 years behind bars. 
Whilst the judge acknowledged he had a particularly fragmented and unsatisfactory upbringing and accepted that this led him to turn to Class A drugs, the 32 years was necessary because of the aggravating factors in this case, including the age and vulnerability of Jane. After the sentence was announced, the detective in charge of the murder investigation said, I cannot imagine the terror and pain that Jane suffered that night at the hands of Keogh. She lived alone in her bungalow and was vulnerable and largely dependent on the support of friends and neighbours, not least to walk her beloved greyhound Paddy. Although she had been married before, Jane had no immediate family. We believe she told neighbours that her uncle was the creator of the Inspector Morse novels, the late Colin Dexter. She was a vulnerable, fragile lady, whom I'm afraid would have suffered greatly during this sustained attack. Keogh has consistently denied any involvement in the crimes against Jane Hings, despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary. He has shown no shred of remorse, but rather displayed a chilling arrogance throughout. Keogh is an extremely dangerous individual, and without doubt the forensic evidence in this case helped us to arrest him very quickly. This result is justice for Jane, and a comfort to the Fleckney and wider community, knowing that he will no longer pose a threat to society. And for all you animal lovers out there, I can confirm that one of Jane's friends has been looking after Patty the Greyhound since Jane's death. The friend said, Jane had him for six or seven years as a rescue, and he was an absolute world, her reason for living. I will look after Paddy for the rest of his life as she wanted. So what did you make of what we've heard today? I found it one of the more difficult stories we've looked at recently. We talk a lot on this podcast about just how frightened some of the victims of the crime we talk about must have been whilst being attacked. And this is clearly the case with Jane. He must have been utterly, utterly terrified. She suffered terribly must have been incredibly scared for quite a while and then been in pain with nobody to help her. Jane, a very caring and charitable person, and when she reached a time in her life when she needed care instead of giving care, she was subject to such a brutal attack from someone she befriended and believed she could trust. As for Keo, he's thrown his life away. Quite what made him do what he did on the night in question is hard for any of us to comprehend. I wonder if it's something he had planned or was carried out impulsively. It doesn't really matter, does it? And one thing is for sure. As he languishes in his cell as you listen to this podcast, he certainly has lots of time to reflect on his actions. I've said here many times that what really aggravates me is how the victim of a murder is forever associated with the person who kills them. And so it is here that someone as lovely as Jane Ings is forever linked with somebody like Craig Keogh. Two such different people you could never meet. Our hearts, of course, go out to Jane's family and friends for losing Jane in such a terrible manner, so unbefitting with the way she lived her life. Thank you for listening to this episode and a huge thank you to Steve for bringing this case to my attention and for his work on this episode. Thank you, Steve. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please join us on the Facebook group, which now has almost 41,000 members. 
Or if you want a smaller, more intimate Facebook group, join me on Patreon, where under 300 of us talk true crime in our own Facebook group. To get access to this, bonus episodes, and all the other benefits of supporting the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcast, and the only one with an annual membership at every sauna in Rochdale, just go to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. And on that hot and sweaty bombshell, I will throw in the towel this week. See what I did there? Thank you for joining me, and until next week, do please take it easy, and most importantly, stay classy.